already said, we're continuing our studies in the book of 1 Corinthians. And this evening we come to the second half of 1 Corinthians and chapter 7. Um, the first 24 verses of this chapter were covered by Peter a few weeks ago when you looked at the uh, topic of marriage. And it's now uh, my turn to handle the topic of uh, singleness from verse 25 down to verse 40. If you're using uh, one of the church Bibles, then you can find uh, this on page 1149, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 25. Just before we read that together, I thought I'd take this opportunity, as I do uh, occasionally, of um, recommending some reading, if any of you are interested in reading more about this particular a topic, probably one of the most helpful books I've, I've found on the whole issue of uh, singleness, both in my own life and also in preparing for this talk, um, is this book here called The Single Issue by someone called Al Shui, which is A-L and then uh, H-S-U. And you can uh, obtain copies of this, I think, from uh, Wesley Owen on uh, George Street. This is obviously an enormous topic uh, and there are lots of kind of a- angles on it that it isn't really possible to cover in a church service like this, but you'll uh, certainly find the book um, like this very, very helpful if you're interested in uh, reading any more on it. So then, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 25 following. The Apostle Paul writes, Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but... I give a a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life and I want to spare you this. What I mean brothers is that the time is short. From now on those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting on it in years, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no c- 
compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he, does, but he who does not marry her does even better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Let's just have a quick moment of uh, uh, prayer and ask for his help as we try and uh, handle this, uh, this particularly tricky passage of Scripture together. Let's pray. Lord, we want to, to bring to you some of our um, feelings as we uh, approach a topic like this. Father, we think of some of the uh, hopes and dreams, maybe regrets e- even, perhaps some of the guilt, and some instances that I guess have probably happened in, in all of our lives that um, re- relate to, to these issues of singleness and relationships and marriage. And so, Father, we would particularly want to pray for your help as we try and uh, negotiate this passage of uh, Scripture, as we try to hear your word speaking to us through it. Lord, we would ask for your help in that. We ask that your Holy Spirit might uh, make this ancient text come alive in our hearts and minds and our experience. We ask that you would give us the grace to hear you speaking to us and to put it into practice. I ask, Father, that you'd help me to uh, tackle this in a sensitive and helpful way. Lord, it's our a desire that we would all make spiritual progress uh, as a result of being here tonight. And so we pray in particular for that, that no matter what we're going through right now, no matter where we're at in our relationship with God, that we might make progress tonight in our relationship with you. And Lord, we ask these things now in Jesus' name and for his glory alone. Amen. The single icon of the last 10 years or so has been a female 30-something by the name of Bridget Jones. Originally a a book, then a film, she has come to symbolize the way and the kind of lifestyle that many single people feel that they have. On the one hand, she has many of the trappings of a successful modern life with a flat, a good career, and a wide circle of friends and social acquaintances. On the other hand, she lurches from one relationship a disaster to the next, always on the lookout for romantic bliss with Mr. Wright, or in her case, Mr. Darcy. The genius of the whole book is the way that many of the characters in it and the situations are so stereotyped that they are very humorous. The friends of her parents, for instance, who who are always gently inquiring whether she has found anyone yet. Or her interfering mother, always trying to set her her up with uh, various rich, handsome, eligible young men. I wonder if that rings any bells with anyone here. However, she's also quite honest about some of the pain of being single. 
these are some of her reflections one evening after some of her friends have invited her round for a meal. All the smug marrieds keep asking me out on Saturday nights now that I'm alone again, seating me opposite an increasingly horrifying selection of single men. It is very kind of them, and I appreciate it very much, but it only seems to highlight my emotional failure and isolation. And Bridget Jones summarizes there quite well what a lot of single people sometimes feel. There's this gratefulness for being included in couples' lives. But sometimes it just goes to underscore some of the feelings, I don't know, of loneliness and isolation when you have to go back to an empty flat at night. And we need to be realistic. There are people for whom their singleness is a very sensitive issue. And because of that, it's a topic that I approach with a great deal of trepidation tonight. I'm particularly aware that people are single at different times in their lives and for different reasons. And because of that, I can't possibly hope to cover every single situation and every single question that folk have in one sermon. And then I'd also like to say that the church doesn't exactly have a glittering track record when it comes to this issue of singleness. Generally speaking, throughout church history, um, things have fallen into two uh, possible extremes. One view is where singleness is exalted. To be really spiritual, you have to be single. And it's kind of seen as a, as a more holy calling than being married, which is, a, which is seen as a concession to the weakness of the flesh. This is certainly the view of the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, and it continues right to this very day. The other extreme, as we were hearing earlier on, is almost where singleness is looked down on. And this has tended to be more of a problem in many of the uh, Protestant churches. Here, the nuclear family is almost venerated. And if someone is not married, then they are to be pitied and prayed for that they might find someone soon. However, what we'll discover from this passage in 1 Corinthians tonight is that neither of those views, neither of those extremes is right. Instead, what we find is that the Bible, God's Word, affirms the positive value of singleness while in no way demeaning marriage. I think we can try and um, summarize the Apostle Paul's teaching in um, this passage like this. Although both marriage and singleness are equal in terms of status and neither is superior to the other, Paul's personal pastoral opinion is that there are good reasons for choosing to remain single. It's very important that we grasp the balance there. Paul says, although both marriage and singleness are equal in terms of status and neither is superior to the other, Paul's personal pastoral opinion is that there are good reasons for choosing to remain singleness. That's the kind of general thrust of these um, scripture verses. It's vitally important to notice that he is not saying that singleness is a superior state to marriage. He never gives us any theological reason for his preference for singleness. Instead, he says that there are some good practical and good pastoral considerations why we should think about singleness in a more positive light. This means that when he writes this, he's performing a very fine pastoral balancing act in this 
a chapter. On the one hand, he wants to kind of affirm this Corinthian enthusiasm for singleness. But then on the other hand, he also wants to reassure them that marriage is not wrong, that it's, and, and it, it isn't sinful, which is what some of them seem to have been trying to say. So I'm sure you noticed as we read through this chapter together um, how Paul is so careful not to lay down commands, but instead to offer advice. The, the whole section, I'm sure you noticed, is characterised by things like, uh, I would think, in my opinion, I give a, a, a judgement as one who by the Lord's mercy is a, a trustworthy. It's all coached in those kinds of terms as he gives the Corinthians advice. And this has some important implications for us when we come to interpret a passage like this. We have to realise that Paul is not laying down absolute laws here, but he's giving us some divinely inspired pastoral counsel. It's vitally important that we realise that. That means that we shouldn't apply this too robustly or too rigidly, but instead we kind of need to try and see the, the broad contours and the whole landscape and the whole context of what he's actually saying and then attempt to apply it to ourselves from that. And very generally, these broad contours are that it's perfectly okay to get married, but Paul thinks that there are some good reasons why we might want to think about staying single. We can see the best summary of it in the chapter there in verse 38, where he says, and kind of summarizes things, so then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. So in kind of normal language, if you want to get married, that's great, that's cool. If you want to stay single, that's extra, especially great. That's extra cool. Uh, uh, both are good. You are not sinning either way. But my own personal opinion is that there are plus points about being single, and that's something that you might want to think about in your life. That's the kind of uh, thrust here, the general thrust of Paul's teaching. And so then, um, what we will find as we go through it is that Paul gives us four helpful and useful pieces of pastoral advice that will help us to keep the right, well-balanced, biblical view of singleness. So then, uh, four principles, and I'll just take them um, one by one as normal. Number one then, there are circumstances in life where it might be pastorally wise to remain single. We can see that in the first section, which is verse 25 to verse 28. Now, the Apostle Paul is probably talking here to those who are engaged or who have never been married. And his pastoral counsel for them is to remain single. And the reason that he gives for this unusual piece of advice is that there was obviously some kind of upheaval that the community was going through that made it unwise for them to get married for the time being. We can see this, especially in verse 26, where he, where he says that it is good for them to remain as they are because of this present crisis. Now, the problem for us is that we don't know what the present crisis was. But what seems likely is that, that there was some kind of hardship, maybe it was a uh, famine, that made Paul say that he thought it was unwise for people to get married, and that they were far better off staying as they were. Now, if there were food shortages in Corinth, and if people were getting weak and 
even dying, as seems to be the implication from later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30, if you're interested in looking at it up later on, it's easy to see why Paul would recommend that people shouldn't get married until the food situation improved. He's very quick to say that people can get married if they want. They aren't, aren't sinning. But he says that because of the, this present crisis, they would be far better off remaining as they were and staying single. And this still remains as wise pastoral counsel for us today. We clearly don't want to be thinking about making major life decisions, and especially something as important and as drastic as getting married, if we are in the middle of uncertainty and turmoil in our world. For instance, I think that Paul would caution us against starting a new relationship if you're about to sit your, your finals, or if you are travelling, or if things are still insecure financially. In each of those situations, Paul might say that the pastorally wise thing would be to stay as you are. Now, you're free to get married if you want. You are not sinning. But on the other hand, it would be good, solid, sound pastoral advice to remain single for the time being. With so much going on in your life already, the last thing that you need on top of it all is the hassle of getting married. You need to take things one step at a a time. There are circumstances in life where it might be pastorally wise to remain single. That's the first thing that the Apostle Paul has to say to us here. So then, principle number two, which is the next section, verse 29 down to 31. And what we learn there is that the second coming of Christ transforms our attitudes to both marriage and singleness. And in this section, the Apostle Paul moves on to challenge the preoccupation that the Corinthians have with marriage and singleness. His main point is that all this talk about singleness is actually wrong-headed. What the Corinthians haven't realised is that there is something far more important in life than either marriage or singleness, and that is living for Christ in the light of the end. He's saying that once you have realised that Jesus is coming back, then that puts a whole new slant on everything. Suddenly, the things of this world, things like buying and selling and owning possessions, and even marriage and singleness, well, they just kind of fade away a a wee bit. Sure, they're still important. Sure, we still need to do them. Sure, we're still uh, often very much involved in them. But they no longer dictate or control how we live or how we should think. You see, for the Christian, the defining feature of their life is not whether or not they are married or single, or even how many possessions they have or what job that they do. It is living to serve Christ in the sure and certain hope that he is coming back. See, I think our culture has sold us one great big whopping lie on this whole subject of singleness. It has told us that in order to be a complete human being, you need to be with someone. In order to be whole, you need to be sexually experienced. If you are single, then there's something wrong with you, and you're probably weird. Maybe you're even gay. Where on earth did we get ideas like those from? 
You see, Paul says quite clearly that we are not defined by our marital status. You are defined by who you are in relation to Christ. Your identity is in him. Don't be held prisoner by the values of this world. Don't let it dictate to you how you think and how you live. Allow your relationship with Christ, the fact that you've been found in him and he's ransomed and redeemed you, to set you free. See, at the end of the day, you don't have to be having sex to be complete. Jesus was single and he was the most complete and most whole and most normal human being who ever lived. And he is our role model, the, a perfect human being. So don't believe the lie. Life is not about whether you are married or single. It is about serving Christ in the sure and certain hope of his return. And once we understand that, that turns everything else on its head, including our, our views and the ways that we perceive marriage and singleness. So then, the second coming of Christ transforms our attitudes to both marriage and singleness. Then, uh, principle number three, being single means that you can be more focused on serving God. We can see this in the next few verses, from verse 32 down to verse 34. Being single means that you can be more focused on serving God. Again, we need to be very clear here that Paul is not saying that being single is superior to being married. All he's doing is laying out the facts of the matter as he sees them. And the reality as he sees it is that if someone is married, then they have the concerns of of their spouse, their husband and wife, or their kids to look after. Whereas a single person doesn't have quite so many concerns and quite so many pressures on their time. So then, in verse 32, he says he wants the Corinthians to be free from concern. He wants them to be free from anxiety, of worry. Probably, they were idolizing being single, and so Paul writes to the married people in order to reassure them that it was okay for them to be concerned about their families. Again, he's affirming the value of being single while also pointing out that it's perfectly okay to be married. Marriage and singleness are equal, he says, but they're also different. And one of the crucial differences is that single people can be more focused on ministry because they don't have the additional domestic concerns at home as someone that's married does. Now, just to give a very practical example of this, the fact that I'm single is a great help in student work. It means that I can hang out at a student's flat discussing issues and eating toast until late at night without having to go home and tow the kids up in bed. It means I can do a 60-hour week organizing events and meeting up with people without my family life having to suffer. It means I'm free to burn the candle at both ends in kind of sermon preparation in a way that a married colleague never could. Now, in fairness, a married colleague can do lots of things that I can't. On the one hand, they have some support in ministry, whereas I need to find it elsewhere. They can also minister in ways as a couple that I never ever could as a single person. You see, neither state is superior to the other. Both are equal, but they are different. And one of the differences is the amount of time and focus and especially flexibility that I'm able to offer as a single person. 
I think this is really one of the reasons here why the Apostle Paul talks about singleness as a gift. He says that marriage is a gift as well because it brings with it certain advantages and opportunities. But one of the real opportunities about being single is it means that you have more time to do things for God than you do if you're married. And I think there's a real call here for those of us who are single to make the most of it. Your singleness is a gift from God. It is to be received gladly and rejoiced in and used and not to be thrown back in his face. If we spend all our time while we're single, running around trying to find a a partner, then the real danger is that we end up losing some of the joy and the opportunity of this great and amazing gift that God has given us. Now, I'm all up for finding a partner. But I'm not going to let that desire get in the way of the gift of time and focus and flexibility that God has granted to me at the moment. Again, singleness is not a curse to be resented. It is a gift to be treasured and used. It is not necessarily something for life, or something that comes with a guarantee of contentment or freedom from, from struggle or a temptation, believe you me. But it is a gift that brings many advantages with it. This uh, extract is from an interview with the famous Anglican speaker and theologian John Stott that's uh, c- contained at the end of uh, this book. This is, this is what he says. In spite of rumours to the contrary, I have never taken a solemn vow or heroic decision to remain single. On the contrary, during my 20s and 30s, like most people, I was expecting to marry one day. In fact, during this period, I twice began to develop a relationship with a lady who I thought might be God's choice of life partner for me. But when the time came to make a decision, I can best explain it by saying that I lacked an assurance from God that he meant me to go forward. So I drew back. And when that happened twice, I naturally began to believe that God meant me to remain single. I am now 76 and well and truly on the shelf. Um, wouldn't be too hard on yourself there, John. But, um, looking back, with the benefits of hindsight, I think I know why. I could have never travelled or written as extensively as I have done if I had had the responsibilities of a wife and family. I think that illustrates the point very well. Just imagine if John Stott had got married. Just think, we would have never had all the benefit of his sermons, his commentaries, and all those wonderful books that have blessed and equipped so many Christians all around the world. He's an example of the kind of impact that someone can have because they're able to give their lives entirely to the service of God unhindered by family commitments. So then, principle three was being, being single means that you can be more focused on serving God. And then the final section, verse 35 to verse 40, and make sure you choose a partner wisely. Make sure you choose a partner wisely. In this last um, section, Paul reiterates his uh, teaching on marriage and singleness and comes the closest that he comes to anywhere in these chapters to giving us some good practical advice on how we can go about choosing someone to marry. And this is what he has to say. He basically envisages asking two questions. Question number one is, is the person a Christian? We can see this in verse 39. 
verses 39 and 40, or a wee bit of an extra bit added on at the end. And Paul is saying there that the widows in the church, if their husbands die, they are free to remarry, but he must belong to the Lord. You can see that there at the end of verse 39. If her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Paul says that they are free to marry whoever they want, but he must be a Christian. Sometimes the great temptation is, I think, especially if you've been single for a while, is to start looking outside the church. And for some people, the struggle to trust God in this area is incredibly tough. But yet I still think that even in our culture and our society, that Paul would stick to his guns here. Marrying a non-Christian is going to be detrimental to your spiritual health. Last month I married two people, both in their 30s, who both struggled in different ways while they were single. One of the most moving parts of that whole wedding ceremony was when the groom described how glad he was that they had both stuck with it and not looked elsewhere and waited for God's a timing, or they would have never found e- each other. Now, that, that kind of thing it doesn't happen in every case, and there's absolutely no guarantee that it will. But in every case, we can always trust God. We can trust that he knows what he's doing, and that he knows best. So then, question number one, is the person a Christian? Question number two, is this person going to help me serve God? I think this is the thrust of verse 35. In verse 35, Paul says that he doesn't write what he does to restrict the Corinthians in any way. Literally, he says that he doesn't want his teaching on singleness to be a noose around their necks. Instead, his priority is that they live in whatever state will enable them to live in a right way, in undivided devotion, in wholehearted devotion to the Lord. So I think there's some advice here for you, if you may be going out with someone, or maybe even thinking about getting married. Is this person going to help or hinder my service for God? Are they going to encourage and support my walk with Christ? Are we going to be more useful to God together as a couple than we would be if we remained on our own? Is the sum of the whole going to be greater than the sum of the two separate parts? See, I think some of this really challenges some of the criteria that we often use for assessing potential marriage partners. But the Apostle Paul says that the most important thing is not whether someone has the looks of George Clooney or the personality of Yogi Bear but whether or not they are going to increase your passion and enthusiasm and service for God. See, I think Paul would say that if someone is leading you away from God and stunting your effectiveness as a Christian, then you are probably better off not proceeding any further. Someone who really ought to have taken Paul's advice was the Methodist preacher, John Wesley. He seems to have been confused about marriage and singleness for most of his life, for most of his life before making a, a disastrous choice of bride. Now, in all fairness, it, would, it couldn't have been very easy being married to John Wesley with the constant travelling and, uh, and the arguments and the uh, violence of mobs who didn't like what he had to say. 
but still the hostility of his wife to his work and his ministry has become legendary. She, she seems to have been constantly paranoid, um, rifling through his, his pockets and breaking into his drawers. She travelled 100 miles to uh, check who he was sharing his coach with and even pulled him once across the marketplace by his hair. By some miracle, John Wesley remained a picture of patience throughout all this, but even he finally wrote that he couldn't stand the constant criticism of every word and deed and the thousand unkind reflections in return for the kindest words he could advise. So Paul says, make sure you choose wisely. Make sure you marry a Christian. And even if they are a Christian, make sure that they are someone who is going to enhance your ministry and your service for the Lord. At the end of the day, you are much better off being single than being married to someone who is going to have a negative impact on your life. You are far better off being single, wishing you were married, than you are being married, wishing you were single. So then, Paul says, make sure you choose a partner wisely. So then, I would like to ask um, three questions of application um, as we close. First of all, is God calling me to be single? I think this is the clear thrust and the clear um, aim of this passage. The plain teaching of this passage is that while marriage is God's general plan for everyone, there are some people who God calls to remain single. And so you need to consider whether you might be someone who God is calling to remain single in order for you to do something specific for him, even if it's maybe only for a limited period of time, like serving on a CU committee or something. You see, there are certain things in the church that increasingly only single people can do. In an era when it's increasingly unfashionable to take families onto the mission field, how are we going to evangelize the world unless single people do it? At the very least, there's a challenge here for us to use the time while we are single, not in hunting around for a partner, but in serving the Lord. If you're single, what are you going to do with all those free evenings in the week? Are you going to stay at home and watch telly? Or are you going to do something for God in them? Is God calling you to be single? And if you are single, what is God calling you to do with your time? So then, uh, application question number two. Am I involved at church? I think this is a crucial question, especially for those of us who struggle with our singleness. God may not have provided you with a, a nuclear family of your own, but he has provided you with a huge spiritual family with old folk and kids and a whole network of enriching relationships. You see, being single is not just about hanging out with other singles and looking for a potential partner. Instead, it's about entering into the richness of the place where God has planted you. Some of the experiences that I think have enriched me most while I, I have been here have been with married couples who have opened their homes to me and let me into their families in a very real way. As was said earlier on, the fellowship groups are a great way of being part of this larger church family where you can meet a whole range of different people in, in a way that in actual fact many of the single people in the world never can. If you're single and you're a Christian, God has given you a family. Are you involved in it or not? And the third question, have I come to view Jesus as precious? 
have I come to view Jesus as precious? If you're here tonight and you're anti-Christian, then it's great to see you. But uh, I'm sure a lot of the teaching in this scripture passage must strike you as rather odd. Surely this whole notion of giving up something as, uh, as fundamental as your right to a, a relationship to serve God m- must sound as if we were all living on a different planet. Who on earth thinks like that in this day and age? However, I think the key to understanding all this and making sense of it for you is to realise just who Jesus is and what he has done. The reasons why Christians can think in these radical terms is because that we believe in living for Jesus and spreading his word is the most important thing that there is, even more important than our right to a relationship and marriage and singleness. You see, Jesus is precious because he has dealt with our number one need. He died on the cross in our place, on our behalf, to take everything that we've done wrong, all that sin, all that shame, all that guilt, all that uh, punishment, even for the relationships and the selfishness that, that we've maybe stuffed up. He did all that. He took that so that we could have a new start as soon as we put our trust in him. Once we've come to see how much he has done for us, then no sacrifice is too great for us to make for him. So a crucial question for all of us here, whether we're single or, or, or married, is have we come to view Jesus as precious? Have we realized that life is not all about the perfect romance or the most successful career or the most lucrative job, but it's all about knowing Jesus Christ? Have we come to put our trust in him? You see, once we have that relationship in place, the issues of singleness and marriage take on a whole new slant. We have an identity that that transcends our marital status. We have a a purpose that is higher than than finding a mate. We are free to be the people, the individuals that God created us to be. And we have a friend and a soulmate with whom we can grow old and spend all our days. Not just now, but in eternity as well. Let's um, respond to God's word in um, 